This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. After the Cup of Dreams at the weekend, the fizzy Cup of Carabao midweek, Manchester United see off a stubborn Charlton Athletic at Old Trafford, Marcus Rashford's goals, Casemiro's sublime distribution and Anthony's steady improvement. Just imagine adding Big Vout to all of this talent. Meanwhile, Big Dan Byrne dances as Newcastle beat a sorry Leicester. A commanding performance on the pitch, but as they get closer to silverware, will the questions about their ownership get louder? Hard to see if anyone at St. James's Park cares that much. Also today, Gareth Bale retires. We have the perfect six brackets six-minute voice note for you. Chelsea finally get an attacking midfielder. Jao Felix turns up on loan. There's some Harry Kane speculation and a correction from Zimbabwe. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Lucy Ward, hello. Hi, Max. Hello, Barry Glendening. Hello. And hello, Johnny Lou. Hello. Shall we start... At Old Trafford. Fred says, please can you talk about Charlton's battling performance against United? Casemiro is worth more than our entire club. Dave says, does taking over 9,000 fans to Old Trafford on a wet Tuesday evening make Charlton the real winners tonight? Barry, it doesn't, does it? Uh, sadly for Charlton, no, it doesn't. But I thought they did pretty well. Um, they never had Manchester United on the ropes or anything, but they were well in the game um, until quite late on and forced Eric Ten Hag to bring on several big guns who eventually won the game or put the game beyond Charlton uh, and he probably didn't want to have to bring them on but because he had one eye obviously on the Manchester Derby at the weekend. Tom Eaton was quite busy in goal for Manchester United. Uh, Albie Morgan threatened from corners from free kicks. Scott Fraser had a couple of shots, one over, one saved. And I, I must confess, I, I know all these Charlton players were pretty new to me. I, I don't watch Charlton very often. In fact, I don't watch Charlton ever. I think the last time I saw them play was when I went to the Valley in 2012. So, yeah, they did okay. Uh, and on another night, they might have scored and, and possibly forced extra time. But Manchester United were clearly the better side and, and are clearly a better side. Uh, JR says, what was Casemiro being held back by Modric and Cruz? Um, it's interesting, Lucy. I, um, perhaps it's my own fault for not watching enough Real Madrid, but I never thought his distribution was this good. Like the the, the way he pinged that pass to, um, was it to Polistri before the, the second goal was just so wonderful, wasn't it? Yeah. I, do you know what? I, I look at, um, you know, that Real Madrid team and, Quite a lot of the, he was a favourite of a lot because of the stuff that he did. And when everybody complained about when he went to Manchester United and said he was old, like nowadays, 31 is like 10 years ago's 26, 27, the way that they look after themselves. But I do think that that he has everything that Manchester United desperately needed for for a two or three seasons. I think that defensive midfielder that actually makes other people look good as well, which is some feat. So as a footballer, you can look good yourself. But if you affect others like he does, I, I think you, you you sort of look twice as good. Was he always this good, Johnny? I mean, like, he, I always knew he was good, but I suppose I was just constantly watching Modric be brilliant that I almost ignored Casemiro. I just nodded along and said, yeah, he's obviously brilliant to make myself sound knowledgeable. But I, I noticed him breaking up play, but not sort of playing passes with the outside of his right foot like he did to Rashford for the third. Yeah, and, and he had a very specific role in that in that Madrid team, and you know I know it's a bit of a it's a bit of a joke like were well, Modric and Crow holding him back. I mean they were kind of in a way because his his job was to give it to them, and the, the one thing you know you can't do in that position when you have I guess maybe not not the quickest 
you know, midfielders alongside you, you can't possibly get countered. And so his his job is to just to re- recycle possession, you know, mainly give it to to Modric or Crows or or the fullbacks. But yeah, I mean, we we, we feel that range at, at the World Cup. You know, we, we saw it in international level as well. And and obviously, at United, he has more responsibility. He's got he's got um, more, I guess, attacking responsibility in that midfield. Um, so we're seeing we're seeing a, a better range from him. I have a, a nice story. I mean, you might not think it's nice. So my partner, Neil Redfern, was a scholar at Nottingham Forest when Brian Clough was manager and he took a couple of the kids away on a pre-season. This is something on from what Johnny says. And he put one of the kids on just after half time and said, and I won't do his voice, but he basically said, I want you to go on, win it and give it to somebody better than you, which shouldn't be difficult because there's 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> So that's basically what Johnny was saying yeah. about Real Madrid. If you've got people better than you, then you win it and give it to them. But obviously, you know, if you can affect others. But yeah, go on and give it to somebody better than you. I'm also excited for a lot of listeners who would have not known that your partner was Neil Redfern going, hang on, your partner's Neil Redfern. Occasionally uh, on the Zoom, we're blessed with Neil's arm coming through the door and handing a cup of tea to Lucy. And then we say, oh, yeah. it's Neil Redfern's arm. Um, Colette says, is it too early to start talking about Marcus Rashford being the future of English football? Cannot stop scoring, Barry. Yeah, he's. it's great to see him back in good form after him having endured a thoroughly miserable time uh, last season. People, well, we all, I think, speculated that there might be something going on behind the scenes that no one was aware of. But then I think we addressed the point that he's back in form in a Monday's podcast when Wilson did make the observation that his surge in form has <laughs> coincided with the very quick decline and subsequent departure of one of his fellow strikers. And I suspect the, the two may be linked. Yeah, which is interesting as to why. And we should talk about Anthony a bit because he played well in this game, Johnny. But it's interesting that they're bringing Veghorst in, isn't it? I mean, that is like Veghorst has offered to pay a compensation fee to Bajiktas just to get to Manchester United. And is he coming in just to, like to play down the middle, like at the start, or is he just for sort of get it launched moments with 10 minutes to go? The interesting thing is if you look at how he did with, with Burnley last season, he's not that good in the air. He, he won very few aerial duels, uh, certainly a lot fewer than you'd expect for a player of his size. And yet he was, I think, one of the, the most prolific players in the league for pressures per 90 minutes for, for a player in his position. So he's actually kind of the opposite of what you'd expect Veghorst to be. Wow. He's a stealth anti-target man. Yeah, basically. They, they, signed, the, they signed completely the wrong player or, or at least used him in totally the wrong way which may be why he didn't do that well for them, uh, but might actually be quite a handy backup option for United. You know, he is a lot more mobile than people think he is. And clearly he's not as good in, in the air as people think he is. And you know, if, if you're looking for a, you know, a sort of a backup option, I think, you know, he, he had to play Kobe Maynou during, through, through the middle, like Maynou and Alanga, which, you know, it's nice to give him some minutes, but if you're, if you're challenging on, four fronts still and um, yeah you do kind of need that that pedigree so I think um, players who are deceptively bad in the air I may be making this up but I'm pretty sure Bobby Zamora just didn't head the ball he just didn't want to do it so he actually if you I mean who has the time to go back and watch some Bobby Zamora games and he might have scored a couple of headers but like he he just didn't go up to challenge for headers he just didn't bother well Peter Crouch wasn't that great in the air was he he wasn't that great I mean he was much better with his feet but obviously, everyone remembers, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. Everyone remembers him soaring in the, in the 90th minute. But, um, you know, he was he was a great player with his feet. And actually, the best way to use him was as a kind of, you know, to play the ball into his feet and, and use his, you know, use his height and, and, and his physicality to um, hold the ball up. I think what you find with some of these players, Max, is that they're six foot two when all the, when the rest of the 11-year-olds are like five foot. So they never have to jump. And it's the jumping that is the, the key, the timing and climbing of a jump. And so when you're already six foot as, you know, as a youngster, which I, I think I went to school with one, bear in mind, I went to school with this lad who couldn't coordinate it. I know I'm full of stories this morning, but bear with me. <laughs> Please do. It's not, it's, it's, it's a Carabao Cup quarterfinal. We, stories are good. <laughs> he couldn't coordinate his feet. He was called Biggin. That was his our, our nickname for, for him. 
He was six foot two when he was 11. Wow. Right. The next time I saw him when, we, when he left, he was six foot six. He couldn't play any sport. And the, I turned the television on one year and he was playing for Scotland Rugby Union. There you go. So well played. Wow. So, are you saying you don't have to have any coordination to be an international rugby player? Is that the... Well, I, yeah. It, yeah. It's easier to do things with your hands and your feet. That's what I'm saying. No, but he was obviously used. His physicality was used very well. But what I'm saying is when you're quite tall um, as a footballer, you don't really have to... To, to leap and I think the leaping is the important bit. I've been um, binge watching the Sarah Lancashire police drama Happy Valley this week which is set sort of in Halifax. I have to say that it's very northern and Lucy reminds me of every <laughs> single female character in it. <laughs> that is such a generalisation Baz. <laughs> That accent that they've got is not quite over here. It's not quite, it's sort of Bradfordy, Halifax. Her accent is brilliant. The way she says the T swear word is the best the way I've ever heard it being said. I must say, I'm, I'm pleased that the conversations we are having are not as bleak as the ones that she has to have over <laughs> a cup of tea and I d- digestive. As far as I no one is locked in a cupboard and being threatened with death on this podcast currently. Um, Anthony's goal was great. I don't need to ask you that, Barry. It was. It was a lovely finish and he's playing quite well. Um, the other quarterfinal was uh, Newcastle beating Leicester. I mean, Newcastle was so dominant in this game, Johnny, weren't they? Yeah, and, and it was one of those games, I think, where Leicester needed everything to go right for them. And, well, they didn't. Uh, they, they did have a little spell, actually. They had, you know, towards the end of the first half, they had a few chances. Um, but, I mean, I was, I was at their um, FA Cup tie at Gillingham at the weekend and they won 1-0 it was really kind of you know scrappy and slow and they just they look at like a team that that lacks confidence there, there's there's very little conviction to them at the moment Pats and Dacca, uh just doesn't doesn't seem to have confidence up front there was this this moment in the first half where he could have had a shot and and chose to pass it and, and, the, and the chart disappeared Vardy looks as though you know never write him off obviously but he, he does look as though he's in that kind of slow decline phase of his career and, and with James Madison still injured, they are kind of, you know, they're they lacking, you know, cliche alert, they're lacking that spark. Newcastle were, were they were back to their best, I think, after after, their, after losing to, to Sheffield Wednesday at the weekend. Full strength team from anyhow. Uh, and, and, you know, really loud crowd as well. And, and, you know, big Dan Byrne kind of popping up in the, like Dan Byrne raising the roof. And it's one of those where you have to, you have to kind of blink a few times. Hang on, is that, is that? Is that? And it's just sort of playing one twos with off off people's ankles, like a proper moment that was. Yeah. In. I mean, presumably Dan Byrne was really short. But then he learned how to play football. Otherwise, there's no way he could have done that. Dave says, "Can big Dan Byrne energy solve the energy crisis?" Luke said, "Should the next installation in the Louvre be a painting of Dan Byrne titled the best feat for a big man?" Paul says, "Should Dan Byrne be on the plane?" And it's interesting, Barry, isn't it? There's, you know, it is a fairy tale story for him being a Newcastle fan, being bought, being 30, thinking he'd never get to play for his boyhood team and playing for them when they are being brilliant. Um, it is a fairy tale story for him. Um, uh, Eddie Howe said afterwards that you, you couldn't script it. And I thought, well, you, you probably could. It's, <laughs> you wouldn't have to be super left field Hollywood scriptwriter to come up with. Dan Byrne scores Carabao Cup semi-final goal for Boyhood Club. But um, it was a great finish, a great goal. But the, the defending was absolutely criminal. Uh, I think two Leicester players, Mark Albrighton and Timothy Castagna, lost the ball in quick succession. Then um, Joel Linton played in Byrne, who, who burst between... Wilfred and Edie and and that man again, Castagne, to to score. I mean, absolutely shocking defending. But I think Leicester were beaten before a ball was kicked in this game. There was, you know, the Newcastle fans are really into this competition this season. They have their flags and banners displays, packed house. And um, if they're facing a Leicester team that Jonathan says is low on confidence, I reckon... I don't think I was ever more certain of any the outcome of any sporting contest than I was that Newcastle had beat Leicester last night. And they should have been a goal up with the first attack of the game. Um, Sean Longstaff missed a sitter after a brilliant move instigated by Miguel Almiron, who was outstanding again, and, and a cross from Joe Willock. But um, 
yeah, Leicester were pitiful and Newcastle have now uh, got to the semi-final of the Carabao Cup, which is great. Uh, something Burton Albion did um, three years ago, I think it was. <laughs> I don't think Burton were even that pleased to get to it. <laughs> Possibly because they knew what was coming. Yeah. Uh, Connor says, do the scenes after the full-time whistle at St. James's Park justify a complaint being lodged with the celebration police. Lucy, do you think Newcastle can maintain this? I keep thinking, you know, they they what they drew those two games and they lost to Sheffield Wednesday. I know that was a weakened team. But I keep looking at this squad thinking those players are not as good as they are performing. And they will sort of revert to the mean at some point. Well, on Boxing Day, I did, did the Leicester-Newcastle game and like the opening minutes was like, wow. I mean, I've seen them, obviously, watch them a lot. I, I think the thing about Eddie Howe is that he has them working in a way that each player knows exactly what they need to do on the pitch. I know that sounds simple, but not every manager does that. And the players know the roles. I think that that's the thing. They're full of confidence. So while ever that's happening, it takes a lot of momentum to shift them the other way and to, to lose that confidence. And even with a couple of dodgy results, that hasn't happened. But when they play at home and they've got that confidence, it powers them. I, I think before, when they weren't playing that well, that shirt is a really heavy shirt when you're at James's Park and you're not playing well. But it's the opposite when, when you are. But I, I just think that they have recruited horses for courses. I think that they've not jumped too high in terms of they obviously have the money to buy whoever they want, but they haven't. And I think that's maintained the camaraderie in the group because you've still got to do that. You've still got to, have to manage a, a group of international or high-earning players. And I think that's the thing that Eddie Howe's probably the best thing he's done is, is, is man management. Alan says, with the news that the Saudi investment fund are on the verge of buying WWE, how do the panel think this will affect Eddie Howe's warm winter training camp? Will John Joe Shelby learn how to put someone in a camel clutch? Will Sergeant Slaughter be the new fitness coach? I don't know, a slightly more serious note, Johnny. I mean, be thinking now, and we've sort of asked these questions before, but it says, should Newcastle fans and Man City fans who go to football matches be forced to sit in a room where they watch the evil of their owners and then be asked if they still support it? I just wonder if, you know, if and when Newcastle get to a final or they qualify for something, will those questions feels to me those questions were there. The question stopped. Then the World Cup happened. And so the question sort of started again because Alan Shearer was sitting in a TV studio and he had to say, well, look, Saudi Arabia own Newcastle. And I, I still don't know if we should keep talking about it or we're, everyone's position is entrenched now and there's no point. No, I think we should. You know, it would be a dereliction of duty not to talk about it, not to talk about where the money has come from and what has funded it and, and, and the sort of people who are funding it. I, you know, but I think it's also it's important to it's important to tell the whole story, right? I mean, like Dan Byrne is scoring for his boyhood club. That is a that is a nice thing. It's it's a nice thing that that you know several several chain links down the line has come from something very ugly. But but that moment itself is is quite beautiful. I mean, this is the, this is the sort of this is the sort of thing we were grappling with, uh, you know, in Qatar for a month, you know, for months and years. You know, when someone ugly buys something beautiful, what happens to the beauty, right? And and I think. We are. It's incumbent on us to try to grapple with it in all its complexity, and to to, to keep trying to, you know, to, to, to avoid simplifying this thing into like it's a, it's a terrible thing or it's it's a wonderful thing. And you know, and fans have their own matrix of, of concerns. And, you know, they they have things that that they're going to care about more than more than others. And, and the, the Newcastle fan base, you know, contrary to to what we might see online or or in forums, is is you know. It's a very diverse and, and nuanced kind of forum as well. Uh, you know, there are fans who feel slightly uneasy about it. There are fans who are, you know, wearing the the, the Saudi kits and, and just just feeling really stoked about the whole thing. And, and you know, there are a minority of fans who, who are, you know, kind of turning their back on this. So it's our duty, I think, to reflect all of that. I'm not a Newcastle fan, but I can recognise why Newcastle fans feel really happy that Dan Burner scored for them. I could acknowledge, you know, that, that that makes them feel really happy, and it might not make me feel really happy. But you know, as a kind of as a reporter, I guess, as a, as a, as a journalist, you know, you, know, you kind of have to acknowledge that. But yeah, I think everyone's going to take a different moral standpoint on it. And, and yeah, I've written, you know, I've written about Newcastle, you know, a, a lot around the takeover. And if, if you know, if, if they end up stepping out of Wembley and, and winning a trophy, I think you know, it, it's going to be fair to say, well, this this thing has been has been funded, has been bankrolled by. Some some real kind of ugly shitheads. So yeah, I think these these things are all true at once, right? The one thing I would say is, and I'm being devil's advocate here because I 
don't like where the money's come from either, obviously. I don't think we give Manchester City as hard a time as we give Newcastle, and I think they deserve the same amount of criticism. But they seem to have got a pass. I'm not sure why. I mean, we did raise it years ago, but we never mention it anymore, or very rarely. Mm. They got a pass because nobody knew. Nobody knew anything about Abu Dhabi when they bought the club. And it became the status quo without anyone ever really questioning it. And then it was only later down the line. People were like, oh, hang on. And, and Newcastle are now getting a lot of the, you know, same with Qatar and Russia, I guess. Newcastle are now getting a lot of the flack that people feel bad for not giving Manchester City at the time, I think. So it's, it's residual flack or rollover flack. Yeah. Well, Robbie says, with, with the news of potential Qatari investment in my beloved Tottenham, do any of the panel know of a sanctuary where I can retire my high horse? I used to like being sexy and poor. So the head of Qatar's sporting investment group has held talks with Spurs amid plans to significantly increase the Gulf State sporting portfolio after the World Cups, is Sean Ingle writing. Uh, sources close to Nasser Al-Khalifi, the chairman of uh, Qatar Sports Investments and president of PSG, have confirmed he met Daniel Levy in London last week. Reports also linking QSI with a potential move for Liverpool and Manchester United have been described as wide of the mark at this stage. European club football rules forbid teams with the same owner from taking part in the same competition for integrity reasons. However, minority stakes are permitted and a series of them are considered to be on the cards for QSI. They own PSG. They own 22% of Braga, Qatar, uh, who lies second in the Portuguese league. I didn't know that. And have a significant investment in paddle tennis, um, a sport which Khalifa plays to a high standard. So if it's a minority investment, does that mean people, brackets me, can carry on wanting Tottenham to win? No. Or not? No, Max. No. No. Do you want want, Max? But um, (laughs) it's grim, isn't it? It's just grim. Max has principles, and if if our listeners don't like them, he has Uh, other ones. Yeah. Oh, wow. I would be very upset if that happened. Uh, Anyway, tonight, uh, Forest play Wolves. Southampton play Man City in the other two quarterfinals, and uh, we'll talk about them on tomorrow's pod. And that'll do for part one. Part two will begin with Arsenal's win in the FA Cup. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Arsenal won 3-0 at Oxford. Pretty straightforward win. Two for Eddie and Ketia. Sets up Lucy Arsenal going to Man City in the fourth round. The tie of the round. Absolutely. I, I am really impressed. I mean, I've, I, I am a little bit biased because I've done Arsenal quite a lot this season. So obviously do quite a lot of research, Baz, even though you think I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going into the games. And I think the European game, I think they've managed... They've managed their games really well so far this season. Arsenal, they've basically got a Europa League team stroke squad and then a, a Premier League team stroke squad, which is doing brilliantly well and they're balancing it well, albeit not that many serious injuries apart from obviously Jesus. But yeah, Manchester City will be an interesting one for them because. I don't know. I, I, Manchester City seem to produce results. I mean, they've had a few dodgy results that seem to produce results, even though they're not completely dominating all parts of the game. But, um, you know, I, I quite like the look of Arsenal at the moment. I, re- I really do. My favourite bit of this game was Lee Dixon in Cocoms at one point. I don't know if he ever told us. He just at one point just said, I made myself laugh there, thinking about something. Or like, I, and then I think he said something like, I'll tell you later or something. It's like, well, what, what, what was it, Lee? I don't, don't know what it was. Um, Kevin says, uh, iPod, watching Arsenal Oxford. The video cuts to who I assume is Jacob Murphy, Newcastle United's current player, thinking this must be illegal to play for two teams in two different leagues, cups. Rationally, I know better than that. After some research, I find it's Jacob's twin, Josh, currently Oxford United player. That jolt of shock is funny to me and possibly to today's pod. So thank you, Kevin. David Ornstein reporting on Monday that Arsenal have appointed Hussein Issa, a Tekkers guru, as their attacking phase coach. Former played non-league football for Hashtag United. Has also appeared as a stunt double for Lionel Messi in adverts. 
had spells at Spurs and QPR as a kid. Do we think, I mean, I, I, Liverpool got roundly castigated by proper football men, Johnny, when they brought in a throwing coach. Are you happy with an attacking phase coach, a techers guru arriving? Hang, hang on. If you're, if you're a double for Lionel Messi, what, what are you doing? Are you doing the <laughs> tricks that Lionel Messi is somehow incapable of, that, that, that he doesn't quite have the, the chops to pull off? I'd, I'd, I'd need, to, need to know more about that. <laughs> so, yeah, Lionel, just step out. We need someone to bend the ball in the top corner with their left foot. If you could come in, please, sir. There was an advert, Max, in Qatar where Messi was putting a, a leather jacket on and a helmet and getting on a motorbike. So perhaps he was a double for that. Ah, possible. That's interesting. For his stunts. Uh, also in this game, the FA have opened a spot-fixing investigation into suspicious betting patterns surrounding the booking of Oxford defender Kieran Brown. This is in the Daily Mail. It's learned the FA have a dossier of evidence regarding supposed corruption, including alleged phone messages before kickoff. Uh, which claimed that Brown would be booked in a betting scam, allegedly cost one bookmaker more than £1,600. One message is understood to show a betting slip with around £200 staked on Brown being yellow-carded at odds of 8-1. to one. He was booked in the 59th minute for fouling Bukayo Saka. A lot of Arsenal fans finding it ironic that for the first time somebody gets booked for fouling Bukayo Saka and there's now a betting investigation. <laughs> um, it's unclear how many bets were placed on Brown being booked and the extent of other bookmakers' liabilities. The FA are taking the matter seriously. Eyewitnesses at the game told Sportsmail they saw several Arsenal fans celebrating after Brown was booked, with several of them bragging about winning hundreds of pounds. That's all um, in the mail, so we will watch that story. Obviously, when we talk about these subjects, it is interesting that so many teams advertise betting everywhere, and yet, uh, you know, that doesn't mean it's okay for people to, you know, a bit like we never bet on me being host of this podcast, Barry, even though we both knew. Uh, when I was 11 to 4, that it was a done deal. Yeah, a friend of mine bet on it. And then he had enormous difficulty getting paid out. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. But I mean, this this spot fixing, you know, Bucky loses 1,600 quid. Boo-hoo. <laughs> you know, that's hard. <laughs> Who cares? It's not even that much money, but obviously it is legal. I mean, there's a massive scandal going on in snooker at the moment. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I think there's 10 Chinese players are all suspended pending in a, an ongoing investigation into match fixing. And, yeah, it's, it's a very dangerous road for sports like that are easily manipulated sports like snooker cricket darts and football you know because there's the old story of southampton kicking the ball out of play from as early as possible to to win money on first throw-ins i think didn't matt Letizia retrospectively get in trouble over that for mentioning it in his autobiography but it, it was to that point one of the the biggest embarrassments of his career <laughs> no, no, I mean it's, it's not so much the bookmakers. It's not much of the bookmakers I feel for. But like, if, if somebody's, you know, obviously decided to to take a yellow card and he's playing up against, you know, I don't know, let's say Bukayo Saka, but it could be anybody. Then, then that's that's a safety risk, surely. Yeah, surely you just kick the ball away, wouldn't you? I mean, I mean, it's not the key part of this. Of how would you earn your booking? Just keep kicking the ball away relentlessly. Yeah, but it's it's just it's very easy to get caught because. That kind of market is quite niche. It's like the high performance podcast, very niche. And um, if anyone tries to put a sizable amount of money on a player getting booked or when it's rolling will happen. Let's talk about Gareth Bale, uh, who has retired from football. Gav says, I wonder if you know anyone who could speak both emotionally and soothingly on Bale's career. Here is six minutes of Ellis James. Well... Where do you begin? Um, I think you could probably bookend his peak years with the Taxi for Mike Gunn game for Tottenham against Inter Milan in 2010 and then with the overhead kick that he scored with his first touch in the 2018 Champions League final, which is a, <laughs> which is a hilarious sentence. But then I suppose... Yeah, there are lots of statistics around how in his year at Tottenham, in terms of uh, games where he was able to play more than 20 minutes, his statistics are actually very good. That extraordinary header in the MLS Cup, you know, where he outjumped a defender who was six foot five. He was always capable of creating 
magical moments. I mean, that that lasted throughout his career. I think probably the, his last couple of years at Tottenham and the first couple of years at Madrid were his absolute peak when he was breathtaking. And Sid Lowe tweeted a load of footage from his Real Madrid era, and which I hadn't seen a lot of it. And, you know, he plays football like it's a fairy tale. Uh, he's, he's a tremendous highlights reel footballer to watch. For Wales, the qualifying campaign for Euro 2016 is difficult really for non-Welsh people to understand how much of an albatross qualifying had become for Welsh football. You know, we hadn't qualified for 58 years. We'd come so close so many times on so many different occasions and had lost out in such a myriad of sort of heartbreaking ways. And he just seemed to thrive on the responsibility and he would grab games by the scruff of the neck. So in that qualifying campaign, we scored 11 goals in total. He scored seven and provided assists for the other two. Like he absolutely dominated. And in my time, obviously, we've had world-class players, you know, Ian Rush's statistics. When you're writing about Ian Rush for an article, there's statistics you have to double-check. I mean, he was a goal-scoring machine. Ryan Giggs, he was the most exciting teenager in British football. He was probably the most exciting teenager in European football at one stage. I remember all the big um, Italian clubs were after him. But they were never able to do what Gareth did. You know, three tournaments, you know, you wait, all your life for one tournament and three come along at once. Three tournaments at the last four. The fact that we've qualified and it's become a fairly routine thing is just extraordinary. Now, I remember Barney wrote a piece for The Guardian when he went back to Tottenham about the sort of his peak years at Spurs. And there are better people, you know, more qualified people than me to talk about how scintillating he was as a footballer. I think the thing I'd like to talk about really is what he did for Wales as a nation. We are a small country. I used to go on holiday with my family. We only had a couple of foreign holidays when I was a kid. I didn't go abroad till I was 11. But I remember, the one thing I remember quite vividly was you would tell people from, you were from Wales and they never knew where that was. And that's just not true anymore. Because football stardom, and like anything else really, because Hollywood stardom could be quite Anglo-centric and... You know, even music, I think, struggles to compete with football. When I was in Qatar for the World Cup, you walk around and you see teenagers from the Middle East and they were in Real Madrid shirts and Chelsea shirts and everyone, when I was there for the World Cup, everyone knew where Wales was and they all knew who he was. And he has put, he's done more to put Wales on the map, I think, than any other individual, certainly in my lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, by, by a country mile. And, you know, Richard Burton was the most highly paid Hollywood actor in the 1960s. But he didn't have fame like Garth Bale had fame. I mean, he was an utter megastar and totally synonymous with Wales. He was sort of hilariously Welsh. He was hilariously Cardiff. I only met him once. But I lived in Cardiff for 11 years. And he just reminds you of people you see in the street all the time. He's actually a very down-to-earth bloke, certainly in my experience. But he just gave us moments that we never thought we'd have. And his abilities to dominate big games and to play well when it really, really mattered is something I will never, ever see. And it was exhilarating as well, knowing that he was making history. So, for instance, the great Welsh rugby team in the 1970s, that's before my time, but that was repeated all of the time when I was a kid growing up. It was always on the telly. But to me, as a child, it felt like old ancient history. And what was so thrilling about Gareth Bale was that you knew that sort of <laughs> he was creating new national myths in real time in front of you. Like I remember when he scored the free kick against Ukraine in the World Cup, in the World Cup fi um, playoff final. Obviously, it was such an emotional game anyway because of the context with the conflict in Ukraine. But when he scored the free kick and it looked like we were going to qualify, I remember thinking to myself, if we hold on now, he has done something that I will remember for the rest of my life. And that was back in June. And we've always lost those games, those big playoff games. The World Cup playoff semi-final against Austria, we needed someone to produce. And of course, it was him and he scored both goals and we won 2-1. <laughs> He just kept doing it when we eventually qualified for the Euros in 2016. 
the first goal. Of course it was him. <laughs> he just kept doing this stuff. <laughs> and it was just, we were lucky to have him. And it's been an amazing 17 years. And I wish him all the best because he is, he's an icon. He's, he's the greatest Welsh sports person of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, thank you, Ellis. I think Ellis could have a career in just reading out, just doing audio books or something. It's a lovely voice. I should t- I should tell him myself. Well, all all he does is talk for a living. He's on about six different podcasts. Uh, he's the voice of uh, farmyard animals in, in some documentary. The voice of TV blunders. I was chatting. Well, having a text exchange with him yesterday, and he said he'd written this article about Gareth Bale uh, for The Guardian and he read over it and then when he pressed send on the email he said he burst into tears. So I asked him <laughs> was it that bad? Because <laughs> you know, I've burst into tears pressing send a few times when I've had to write art columns and I, short notes. I just, I just press send and thought and then when they just go yeah that's fine I think have none of you read that shit? Are you serious? This is ridiculous. Um, Johnny, you wrote a piece as well about Gareth Bale. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I felt quite, felt quite emotional as well. Not not in a, you know, not in a Welsh, you know, patriotic sense. But when I was when I was starting out covering football games, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time covering that that Tottenham team, 2010, 2011, 2012, and and then that you know that 12, 13 season, and and it was just the, the birth of this player. Who, like you'd never never remotely seen before you know not not only the pace but the technique and the audacity and and and, and yeah so th- there were some there were some incredible memories wrapped up in in, in Bale and I, I think you know this is what I wrote that everyone lists his kind of his trophy cabinet as I guess a kind of vindication but I, I, I will remember him more for the, the amazing stuff he did in, in a split second you know, that, that, that last-minute goal against West Ham for Spurs in 12-13, where he basically hauled a team with Lewis Holtby in it to the verge of the, the Champions League. And, you know, that the goal in the Copa del Rey final. That these are, you know, he Bale produced more of those moments than than pretty much any player of his generation, almost any player I can remember. Um, and, and it was, you know, the Bale run, the Bale burst of speed, the Bale free kick... Which was basically a guaranteed goal. There was a, there was a point in between about twenty twelve and twenty fourteen where a bail free kick was like a guaranteed goal, and, and, and I've not seen many players like that. The um, the overhead kick in the Champions League final in Kiev was the only time I've been in a stadium where someone has scored a goal and there has been like an audible silence before people start cheering because it was just so completely ridiculous. It was like this moment, and you, you're right, like. The pace. I mean, I know it's, you know that's not necessarily a, a skill, but just the way that burst of pace was just wild. You know, you think about the Micon game or the Copa del Rey, or just there was one I, I saw a, a goal he scored against Norwich. Uh, you know, and where he just sort of right through the middle, and it just like and then just dinked over the top, and you're like, this is just this is totally sort of like otherworldly football. I just hadn't seen a footballer do that before. I mean, there's sort of some conversation about. If he's Britain's greatest ever player, I mean, he's Wales' greatest ever player. I think that's safe to say, Lucy. I don't know if you contest that, but but no, he has absolutely. to he, he has to be up there. You know, why can't we just enjoy them all and all of that with with you know the finest footballers that you know Great Britain and Northern Ireland has ever created. Yeah, I, I agree with with Johnny. Some of the some of the things that he does, and right at his his peaks that he he, he kept reaching, that there was he was probably one of the best in the world o- up there with those, you know, the Messi and Ronaldo's. But they obviously kept at that level for season upon season upon season without necessarily the injuries that that he had. But I just I think it's more of a it's more of a holistic story, isn't it? With with Bale, with Wales, and. It's so nice to see a millionaire footballer have that sort of connection with his country that he would do. I mean, everybody used to ridicule him that Wales came first. But, you know, if, if you're Welsh, and I know a lot, I went to another story about my best mate from uni is Welsh. So I know what sport means to them. And he was just, you know, he just meant the world. And I think that that's 
a better story. But when you look at some of the stuff that he did, did the football, but I think there's quite a lot of the time there was there was nobody doing it better at, at that particular point. But it did it wasn't as consistent as the Ronaldo and, and Messi's of, of the same era. Uh, Hugo Lloris has also retired from international football, not all football. I don't know if Tottenham fans be like, that's a bit of a weird timing. <laughs> You've got the North London derby on Sunday, mate. Um, uh, he should go down as one of the greatest ever, really. Won the World Cup, the most capped French player of all time, 145 caps. And I don't know why I don't put him in that bracket, Barry. Is it because I've just seen him looking miffed after Tottenham have conceded another goal? Just so many goals. He's played for them for so long. Or that he isn't necessarily on the top table of goalkeepers. I don't know. Um, well, you're you're you kind of sprung that on me. I'm now trying to imagine who's at my top table of goalkeepers, and it's like I've got Pat Jennings on my Bruce Grobbler. <laughs> I think Pat. I'm not sure Grobbler gets on it, does he? Um, I can't remember it. But Big Nev, Big oh, Nev, Big Nev, absolutely. Big Nev is brilliant. Yeah, Big Dino's Nev, off. Michael Zoff. Buffon, Yashin, Levy Yashin. Not that I ever saw him play. Luis isn't on that table, is he? No, I don't think he is. But I'm not sure why. Um, and I, maybe it's that clangor he did in the World Cup final. I know it was like you know they were four-one up, but still, not a great look, is it? Amazing, amazing keeper, amazing agility. Uh, just and, and, a, and a really great leader as well. He was in, in what is one of the most fractious dressing rooms. And, you know, one of the most febrile places to be an international footballer. Uh, Lloris was, was you know, pretty much widely liked by everyone. He was, he was almost the kind of the, the, the calming influence in that, in that dressing room, which, which can't be understated as well, because they have had some, they have some turbulent times as well. And he's, he's kind of been there through all of that. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do some transfers and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Jao Felix to Chelsea. Uh, a loan move, 11 million euros with 100% of the salary covered by Chelsea, but just a loan as he's extended his contract with Atleti until 2027, which I don't, Barry, I don't quite understand that. No, um, neither do I. I presume it's to increase his sell-on value because I'm not sure he's particularly happy at Atletico Madrid because... They play a style that doesn't really suit him and he doesn't score very many goals. I mean, this whole move I find slightly weird. Paying is is nine million for less than half a well, half a season, I suppose, you're getting out of him. And he's a player that doesn't strike me as one that Chelsea particularly need, because they've lots of sort of Jow Felixes there already. Wingers who don't score very often. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't get it. But it might work out. I mean, I've never been particularly impressed with him until, you know, he was unleashed at the World Cup when Cristiano Ronaldo was dropped and was absolutely brilliant in that game against... Who was it? I can't remember. Can anyone remember? Who did that? Who, when that lad scored a hat-trick? Switzerland. He came in. Switzerland. He was... Felix in that game was absolutely unreal. Like, I'd never seen yeah. him. So if, if Chelsea get that Chow Felix, brilliant. But um if they don't, yeah, nine million for a loan deal for half a season. It just seems absolutely ludicrous. But money's no object to them, I suppose, so what does it matter? Does all this mean, Lucy, that Chelsea are, are sort of not necessarily happy with Potter because it's not going so well, but they're sort of they're giving him lots of nice things to play with. <laughs> Do you know I, I feel a little bit for Graham Potter because the injuries that they've had combined with the squad that won the Champions League like declining slowly and steadily uh, and the older players obviously reaching the end of the time at Chelsea, I think that has just resulted in you know, the, the, the kind of performances and results that Chelsea are getting at the moment. But I, the, the owners are trying to change what Chelsea are, whether Chelsea fans like it or not. And that's the thing. I'm doing Fulham Chelsea tomorrow night, so obviously been having a look at what the fans are thinking and, and what's going on and you know whether Chelsea fans like it or not this is the new Chelsea you know they, they're trying to be different they, they you know they've always had a lot of of younger players who they just farmed out on loan and then 
obviously they turned into assets and they were sold, etc. Um, now they're bringing in the, the type of transfers they're bringing in are um, younger players to then to be developed and play in, in Chelsea's first team, which obviously blocks off the path of development players already there. So that's a short term thing that they'll probably have to sort. But this is not something that's going to be a particularly quick fix. And I think there's a lot of Chelsea fans that have not particularly bought into to that and they're not used to it. They don't really want to keep sacking managers mid-season. They've obviously brought Potter in and, and the players that they're bringing in. Felix is an is a interesting one because it'll be another player that Chelsea have got that's not really got a nailed down position. They've really got two nines at the moment because of the, the, the injuries or, you know, Havertz can play there, Bamiyang, but that's probably where they need it. But um, yeah, I think there'll be. Uh, I think that that you've got to forget what happened in the past as a Chelsea fan. It's a little bit, um, a little bit wobbly at the moment. But hopefully, in the future, that um, that they're going to have to keep spending money if they want to keep up with, with with top four. Which is interesting, really, because they've spent so much money, haven't they? Yeah, but they've they've also they've lost they've lost so much as well. Uh, I mean. It, I'm just thinking about, so we're doing our um, of kind of voting, it's the voting deadline today for the 100 greatest, Guardian 100 greatest male oh, footballers. Yes, yes. And I was, you know, as, as part of that, I was looking back last year and Jorginho came second last year. Jorginho was the second best player in the world in 2021. And a lot of people actually put him put him first. And it, it's incredible how how quickly he's... Yeah, he's not. He's not kind of gone into terminal decline, but he's definitely come back to the pack, and and he's, he's, he seems to have he seems to have lost a yard, um, and he, he he looked a little bit lost in that midfield. And if you if you add that to to Kante, who's obviously been injured for most of the year, that's an entire midfield pretty much that they need to rebuild. And so that, you know they're looking at Enzo Fernandez, and, and that that's probably where Chelsea need to strengthen rather than uh, you know buying. Another attacking midfielder. Although, although I really, I really love Felix, and I, and I hope he, you know, I hope he can kind of kickstart something in his career again. Um, I'd love to see him, you know, back on top form. But uh, it, it's not so much the money they spent as the kind of the arbitrariness and the lack of strategy and the unevenness of it. It's, it's almost as if you know the new regime is like, there's a player for sale. Let, let's go get him, and then you know we'll also buy a coach who can kind of fit it all together. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that joined up. Well, Enzo Fernandez seems to be the main target, but um, Benfica travelled to Portuguese third-tier side Varzim last night. 1-2-0, and Enzo scored the first goal. And uh, in an exercise of classic textbook performative footballer nonsense, he went to the away fans, proudly slapped his Benfica badge, pointed to himself and then pointed to the ground as if to say, I'm staying, I'm staying. So It was an away I, game. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm moving to the third tier <laughs> yeah. of Portuguese football. I'm not sure Varzim <laughs> can afford the 112 million release clause. But yeah, so that show of, of uh, loyalty would suggest that he'll be unveiled as a Chelsea player within a week. <laughs> um, Brighton have apparently rejected a bid for Leandro Trossard from Spurs. Uh, Real Madrid apparently want Harry Kane um, at the end of the season. Southampton have brought in a couple of players. Mislav Orsic, who scored in the World Cup third-place playoff for Croatia, joins for £8 million. Uh, Two days ago, they signed young Argentinian midfielder Carlos Alcaraz for £12.3 million from Racing club. Isn't he a tennis player? Yes. Yeah, which seems like a poor signing from Nathan Jones, <laughs> doesn't it? Also, he's, he's injured. Mats he's Verlander. injured, which would kind he's, of bought, he's bought Mats Verlander and Jim Courier, which is a <laughs> knock. He's not going to sort their midfield out, is he? Um, he scored the winning goal of the 2022 Argentinian Cup final against Boca Juniors in extra time, um, sparking that huge melee, if you remember it, and at 10 red cards, of which he was one of them. Uh, international manager watch. Andrea Pirlo wants Roberto Martinez's uh, Belgian gig. And has anyone heard the new favourite for the Poland job is Steven Gerrard? Correct. And I really hope he gets it because the prospect of someone with a thick Scouse accent having to talk about loads of players with the letter K sprinkled liberally throughout their surnames is, is just delicious. That is perfect. That's, that's absolutely perfect. Like a a country defined by years of 
underachievement and an ingrained pessimism surrounded by, you know, larger and, and more successful neighbours and just, you know, falling into this kind of existential malaise, not without talent. That is a perfect fit. I don't imagine Stephen Gerald will use their full names, will he? Or he'll just, when he's asked a question, he'll only, t- <laughs> he'll, he'll only talk about Matty Cash. That's the only person he'll talk about. Uh, Al Nasser, uh, who signed Ronaldo, wants Sergio Busquets, apparently. Um, and they'd say that Ronaldo's new contract does not include any commitment to back a Saudi Arabia bid to host the 2030 World Cup. Reports claimed he would earn 200 million euros to promote the bid on top of his annual salary of 200 million euros. But the club said his deal does not entail commitments to any World Cup bids. His focus is on Al Nasser and to work with his teammates to help the club achieve success. Um, We'll do a Europod, by the way, next week. Um, But uh, well done to Cheesy Buffon, who who is on the top table and is still playing. He played for Parma as they beat into Milan, Palmer in Serie B, and he made a brilliant save, Meningeco, in like the 94th minute. Um, he's 44. Ridiculous. Chad says, hi, Max, and the whole lovely lot of you. Long time listening. Zimbabwean here, cringing at the umpteenth mispronunciation of our most famous oh, footballer's no. name. I can break it down so it's almost phonetic. And love is not pronounced and love or and love, as Ray Stubbs would. It's pronounced and lovu. And is best pronounced like and without the A. Uh, and Jonathan Wilson is correct. And Lavu does mean elephant. I do feel like I'm trying to do an impression of Vic Reeves. Yeah, right I was now, about but- to say. <laughs> <laughs> so like Vic Reeves while he's rubbing his thighs on shooting star. And Lavu does mean elephant in our third most widely spoken language. And Abele. And Abele. So uh, thank you, Chad, and sorry for masquerading the language once again while reading out your message. And that'll do for today. Uh, Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you very much. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Lucy Oliver uh, with Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 